from CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, in partnership with Phi Delta Cap and Magazine, we're looking at the business of education and the ways in which, as researcher Sally Wertheim said, the making of a scholar coincides with the making of a dollar. I think for a lot of companies, it's sort of this place where they see a lot of potential for not only reaching current customers, but also creating consumers who, when they're adults, will want to purchase those very same products. That topic drives the October 2020 issue of Cap'n Magazine. And today we speak with contributing writer and University of Wisconsin-Madison researcher Jennifer Gaddis. Gaddis joins CPRI Executive Director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss her new article, The Big Business of School Meals, her book, The Labor of Lunch, and the evolution and impacts of school food programs across the U.S. But if we look specifically at students in that free and reduced price category, it's actually had a really important impact on obesity rates and health outcomes for those students. Gaddis also discusses the community and workforce impacts of various approaches to school food programs and the uphill climb many may face in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that it's just, it's a real challenge right now in schools in terms of knowing how important the service that they're providing is, but really being under-resourced when it comes to providing that service. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello, and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, the Executive Director of the Consortium for Policy Research in Education, headquartered at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Today, we have the real pleasure of speaking with Jennifer Gaddis, an Assistant Professor with the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the author of the book, The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So today we're discussing your new article in the October 2020 issue of Phi Delta Kappen magazine entitled, The Big Business of School Meals. Everybody probably remembers their school cafeterias and lunches, maybe fondly, maybe unfondly, but little do we know what an industry this is. And in your title of your magazine article, You put a lot of emphasis on the word big, capital B, capital I, capital G, referring in the article to what you call big food. Can you give us a little background on what this is and how does it play out in American schools? For sure. So one thing that I think is an important piece of context to understand is that in about 95% of our public schools across the country, we have um, what is supposed to be a not-for-profit school food program. So that's the National School Lunch Program. And in some schools, there's also the National School Breakfast Program. So these are really supposed to be programs that are run for the benefit of kids and their families and also for American agriculture. And we spend about $14 billion of federal funding every year on the school lunch program alone. So there's kind of a lot of money in this just in terms of public funding. And that's not even counting the money that kids might spend in terms of buying their own meals if they don't qualify for free or reduced price meals or purchasing stuff in the a la carte line or in vending machines if their schools um, have those. So there's a lot of money in schools um, and school food in particular is a place um, where we see a lot of commercialization. 
And it can take a few different forms. So one form is certainly a lot of companies who really look at school food um, and the school food environment as a place where they can reach a whole lot of young consumers and really shape their taste preferences and brand loyalties over time. Um, and actually just access about you know, 30 million kids um, on a daily basis who participate in this program. That's one of the reasons why we see um, a lot of in-school marketing from food and beverage companies, but also in the regular school meals that um, are subsidized by the federal government, we see a lot of products from like very, very large companies like Tyson, for example, for chicken nuggets that are served as part of the federally reimbursable school meals. It used to be that a lot of schools would cook from scratch with basic ingredients. And now in schools, there is a much higher percentage of food that has been cooked off-site by manufacturers um, who will prepare frozen or shelf-stable foods and then um, send them to the schools for reheating. So that's kind of one of the, the major ways in which a lot of these very large companies are found in schools. But there's also kind of a, another branch of big food companies, so not the ones who are making the food, but food service management companies. So those are companies like probably the biggest household names would be Aramark, Chartwells, and Sodexo. So people might know them not only from the K-12 land, but also from having contracts with other kinds of institutional food service like colleges and universities and hospitals and even prisons. So these food service management companies, they cover about 20% of school districts across the country. And basically what happens is a school district can decide if they want to run their own version of the school food program. So they would basically be participating in that federal program that I mentioned, but they administer it locally themselves, like through the Board of Education. Or they can say, you know, we don't really want that headache of managing the school food program. We'd rather have people who kind of specialize in doing that work run our program for us. So they can choose to outsource the management of their food service program to one of these for-profit companies. So I think that that's kind of a, a tricky place where we see these companies that actually have really lucrative and extensive contracts with food service operations, not only across the United States, but for many of these very, very large food service management companies, their reach is global. So we're talking about certain companies that oftentimes like have a lot of power in terms of thinking about um, not only their influence within like, the food systems that they're servicing, but also that really are um, able to kind of use their power and their bigness to try to make special kinds of deals with the manufacturers. So there's kind of some close relationships between the food service management companies and some of the large food manufacturers as well that can, I think, um, make for a tricky situation in schools when it comes to thinking about how to make profit a little bit less of a motive and to think more about health and well-being for kids and community. One of the things that was really fascinating when I read the Kappen article, and I'm sure is elaborated on in your book, is the evolution of both legislative changes and economic pressures that are in many ways very visible in the squeezes that districts feel in, in managing their school food programs. And so can you give us a little overview of how, how we evolve to the situation today? For sure. So 
I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the idea of school food being something that should be nutritious and affordable and accessible to all is something that we've had with us for essentially as long as we've had like compulsory public education in the United States. So the first um, not-for-profit school lunch programs in the U.S. Um, actually started in the 1890s, but it wasn't until 1946, so right after um, the end of World War II, that a permanent federal school lunch program was created. And in those first couple decades, really kind of into the late 1960s, the majority of the kids who actually participated in the school food program who had access to these noontime meals were actually from white middle-class families. And one of the reasons for that is that there was a major kind of boom in construction after the war, particularly in the suburbs. And so a lot of those school facilities were actually built with kitchen and cafeteria spaces. And it was sort of assumed that those kids wouldn't be as easily able to walk home um, for, you know, having lunch at their own houses. So there's a lot of like gendered and economic assumptions at play in terms of, you know, whether or not there would actually be a caretaker at home waiting for kids. But for sure, in a lot of the urban schools um, that had been built during earlier booms in public instruction, a lot of those facilities really weren't built the same kinds of kitchen and cafeteria infrastructure because there wasn't a federal program yet. This actually created a lot of structural racism um, within the program in terms of which kids actually had access to the federal school meals program. So in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was this real um, sort of public recognition that there are a lot of poor children, particularly from African-American communities in urban areas and also in rural areas who had been overlooked and kind of excluded from accessing this program. So that really created a major kind of social movement push, um, and lots of parents and other advocates were involved in pushing the federal government to expand access to free school meals to a lot of these facilities um, in urban and rural areas that had lacked access previously. But unfortunately, the federal government um, didn't really put a lot of money into saying, yes, we're going to retrofit school buildings to make sure that we have kitchen facilities to where we can have healthy made-from-scratch food in these schools. Instead, they really looked to the commercial food industry, particularly airlines and others who were sort of experts at feeding lots of people in really small spaces to say, you know, what, what can you do? So it was really, um, in some ways, this time period in which we saw a tremendous increase in terms of the access that poor children had to school meals when industry, so both the food service management companies and these frozen food manufacturers really got their foot in the door in terms of saying, we can offer not only more efficient management for a lot of these big urban districts that really need a lot of help in terms of scaling up their programs quickly, but they also were able to say, you know, we can make sure that you're able, even if all you have is a closet for a kitchen, to like feed 500 people at once because we can just put like a big convection oven in there. We can wheel in all these little kind of like TV dinner style meals, get them reheated, and we can serve them to the kids. So that was really this, I think, critical period in which a few things happened. Um, so one, um, we really saw this massive shift towards heat and serve food instead of made from scratch food in schools. And we also saw during this time period in the 1970s, a real shift in how school food was conceptualized. So instead of being something that was 
sort of thought of as for everyone. It started to be kind of recast as a social welfare program that primarily was supposed to support children from economically disadvantaged families. So that kind of followed us into the 1980s. And the Reagan administration, I think, did a lot of damage in terms of slashing school food budgets by about 25%. So that made a situation in which a lot of schools were already struggling to provide healthy food, made it really difficult for them to even kind of maintain existing standards. And a lot of a lot of schools really had to cut corners in ways that I think that they wish they hadn't had to during that time period because they just saw such a reduction in funding. So I think that that was sort of a time period in which we saw a decline in terms of, I'd say, both the quality and the nutritional content of school meals. I remember, sorry to interrupt you, but I remember... Ketchup as a vegetable? <laughs> ketchup as a vegetable, exactly. I'm probably aging myself, but... Yes. I remember that from the Reagan era. Yeah. So that was something that ultimately there was a lot of sort of public outrage over that like, you know, ketchup is a condiment, we shouldn't count it as a vegetable. But that was basically one of the cost cutting tactics that was floated. And that was sort of the ethos that really did define the 1980s um, when it came to school food. So sort of like, how can we provide scientifically nutritious meals like in name, but not necessarily like a whole lot more than that. So I think during that time period, there was a real reduction um, in terms of people choosing to participate in the program. So an important thing to understand is that the way that our school food programs work now is that students qualify for free reduced price or what are called paid meals based on their family income. So for the most part, when there is a reduction in food quality, whether it's at the federal level or just the local school food program, um, maybe has taken a turn for the worst, um, we tend to see a much more severe reduction in terms of that paid category, because in theory, like those kids are a little bit more able to make choices every day about whether or not they want to participate in the program or maybe bring a lunch from home. Whereas the kids who qualify for free or reduced price meals, their families are probably a little bit more dependent on the economic subsidy that school meals provide. So that's one of the reasons why I personally think it's so important to be thinking about the quality of food in schools, because it's really a matter of like social justice and equity. And if we look at you know, who disproportionately is participating in the program, it's kids from economically disadvantaged families and also kids from communities of color. So I think that um, there have been some really positive changes, though. I'll, I'll say that you know, I was in school like in the 1990s when pretty much um, you know, what would be a school meal for me would have been something like a slice of pizza and a chocolate milk um, or like chicken nuggets and a strawberry milk. And that could actually count as a federally reimbursable meal because up until 2012 um, in schools that used something called offer versus serve, what would happen is schools would offer the five components of a school meal, which in theory, if you took all five, you'd have a pretty balanced meal because it would include a vegetable, a fruit, milk, protein, and grain. But with offer versus serve, um, what it did was it allowed kids to choose any three of those five components. So that's how like when I was growing up, I could choose like a sugary milk and a slice of pizza, which counts for protein and grain, and that would be my meal. So I think that there was actually um, a major improvement in 2012, and that was when the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010 was enacted. 
And what that did was it not only required schools to start serving more whole grains and less sodium, but it also um, said that, okay, schools that want to use that offer versus serve policy, they can continue doing that, but kids have to choose either a fruit or a vegetable for one of those three components. So there have been some studies that have looked at the results of um, that policy, particularly um, in terms of uh, what it's done to child obesity rates, since that was one of the kind of major policy drivers for the passage of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. And what it's found is that overall, if we look across all kids, uh, it maybe hasn't had a huge impact in terms of child obesity rates. But if we look specifically at students in that free and reduced price category, it's actually had a really important impact on obesity rates and health outcomes for those students. So yeah, I think it's it's important, especially like within kind of the context that we're in now with the current um, administration, there have been sort of multiple rollbacks of this Obama era legislation by the Trump ad admin. And I think that, you know, one of the uh, results of that um, is that um, we could end up seeing some of those gains that we've seen for students in the lower socioeconomic spectrum kind of disappearing um, if schools aren't really given the resources that they need financially to ensure that they're serving really healthy meals. Jennifer, that's really interesting. And it kind of leads to something that you've referred to that called scratch cooking, which you mentioned a little bit in the article and you elaborate on in your book. So can you tell us a little bit about what scratch cooking is, both in terms of the food that is provided to, to kids, but also the economic structure around scratch cooking? So first of all, what I mean by scratch cooking is really taking more basic ingredients. So things like could be raw chicken or it could actually be pre-cooked chicken, but that wouldn't have any kind of like additives or breading on it. And using that um, along with other basic ingredients like vegetables and stuff like that to make finished meals. So it's basically just this idea that all the work that goes into transforming raw ingredients into a finished meal is happening mostly on site in a school kitchen. So that could be either a district-wide central kitchen or it could be um, a smaller kitchen that's attached to the school building. But the point is that that work is happening within the school district itself by public employees um, instead of being um, effectively outsourced to these kind of large factories, um, like I mentioned earlier. So when I first started doing this research, which I guess would have been in about 2008, there were a lot more concerns that school districts faced in terms of the quality of what sort of factory-made foods were available. But as more and more people started talking about how, hey, if we cooked food from scratch, we could make sure that we're not exposing kids to things like artificial colors or artificial additives or other kinds of things that people, particularly nutritionists within school food programs, um, started to refer to as ingredients of concern because of how they impact. Um, it could be like physical health or it could be, for instance, hyperactivity or things like that. So scratch cooking, um, because it gives you a lot more control over what ultimately goes into the meals that you're serving kids, um, was a major strategy that a lot of districts were looking to um, in order to try to reduce the amount of chemicals that kids were consuming through school meals. And at the same time, scratch cooking was really thought of as a way to improve the taste and appearance of food since it would be fresher. And I would say that the kind of third component was really this uh, 
desire to source food more locally through what are called farm to school programs. Um, So that's basically this idea of trying in particular to get fresh produce from local farms that would be ideally smaller and more medium sized rather than kind of shipping everything from California or other, you know, major places in which we grow produce in the country. And I think that industry in a lot of ways, if they wanted to keep their dominance within the school of food sector, they really had to respond in some way or another, because it is actually quite a bit more profitable for food companies to be selling uh, finished products that are so-called value added versus like basic ingredients. Just the profit margins are a lot higher. So what we saw between when I first started doing this work in 2008 and now is this real kind of shift within the school food industry, and I'd say the food industry more broadly, toward what are called clean label foods. Those are basically these higher quality industrial foods that just don't have nearly as many of the like additives or artificial like colors and things like that foods maybe had like when we were growing up. So I think that that's been kind of a counter push from the industry. But I really talk about that as something that I think, you know, is, is okay as a general trend, like it's great to have higher quality industrial foods, but I think that um, it makes a lot more sense for districts to be focusing on moving in the direction of scratch cooking because with these clean label foods, you can sort of get at those concerns in terms of like the nutrition and children's exposure to chemicals, but it's a lot more difficult to incorporate local food and support like local farmers and your local food economy if you're not cooking from scratch. So that's something that these clean label industrial foods can't really help you with. And at the same time, one thing that I haven't really mentioned is the impact on workers in food service programs. So when you shift more and more of your meals to be things that are reheated and served rather than cooked from scratch, what that ends up doing is it really reduces the number of full-time jobs and creates a lot of jobs for food service workers, which I should mention is a very, very highly gendered workforce. It's over 90% women. And what it does is it creates a lot of jobs that are three or four hours long in the middle of the day. And so it makes it really difficult for these workers, many of whom are actually primary providers for their families, to actually cobble together enough money to support their own families. So many of the workers that I have interviewed in school districts across the country, you know, they have two, sometimes even three jobs, but they're all like these jobs that are part-time without benefits. They might be working in schools and, um, you know, when their school shift ends, they might be going to like a elderly care facility or something like that. And one of the like kind of threads that connects these different workplaces is their reliance on part-time workers to reheat food. And so one of the big things that I've really seen in some of the districts that I've done work in that I think are at the forefront of this movement of really embracing scratch cooking and farm-to-school programs is that when they do those things, um, they're able to start creating much higher quality jobs for food service workers in their communities because They're just bringing more work back in-house. So instead of having a lot of these three and four-hour jobs with very, very limited job mobility, what you end up having are a lot more jobs that are kind of in the six to eight-hour range with career mobility since people can actually, you know, move from maybe being an entry-level worker to being a prep cook to being like a kitchen supervisor or something like that. 
So I think that if we're actually thinking about how we can improve job quality for workers in our communities, we have to think about what sort of jobs are we creating through our public programs. And I think that this real heavy reliance on heat and serve foods has been very, very detrimental to the quality of jobs for food service workers in the country. And I should mention also that it's even worse um, in general for food service management companies. One of the, the big things that studies have found when they've compared food service workers who are employed by districts that are self-operated, meaning they run their own food service versus those that have outsourced, is that the outsourced ones um, tend to earn several dollars an hour less than those that are hired directly by their school districts. So, I mean, you have to kind of think about these are for-profit companies that somehow in a not-for-profit program are carving out a space to earn profit for themselves. (laughs) And labor is one of the big places in which they do that. Yeah. You know, it comes clear through your work that district leaders and policymakers are under this pressure to both be efficient because the reimbursements they're getting from the federal government aren't exactly generous. So they're very, very constrained per meal. And so they might want to provide more local jobs and and better meals for kids. But on the flip side, they don't want to overly run deficits for school lunches where they have to take money from other areas. So what are some suggestions from your work that you think might help policymakers either reframe or be creative about how they can think about getting the best meals for kids and supporting local both food creators and workers so that they can essentially you know, try and have their cake and eat it too, so to speak? Yeah, I think that there are a few different levels at which this can happen. I think that you're totally right that there are a lot of pressures that local food service administrators are under. So that's why I think one of the biggest things that we need to work on is advocacy in terms of really trying to push the federal government to increase the reimbursement rate for school meals. On average, it costs um, schools more to produce each meal than what they're getting reimbursed by the federal government. So that's why in 2019, there was a new bill that was introduced called the Universal School Meals Act that suggested increasing the reimbursement rate to $3.81 per lunch. And so that was sort of recognizing that we know that local school administrators um, really are struggling with the amount of money that they're given. And so if we actually want to see some of these improvements happening, we have to make money available. And that same legislation also said, okay, um, for any schools that are sourcing at least 30% of food locally, they can get an additional, I believe it was 30 cents per meal reimbursement. And there have been some states. So in particular, I think Michigan um, and Washington and Oregon have done some real groundbreaking work in these areas to try at the state level, so within kind of state policymaking circles, to say, okay, we recognize um, that maybe with a little bit of additional investment, our schools as anchor institutions in our communities could be really important purchasers of food, particularly from like family-sized farms. So I know, for instance, in Michigan, they have a really interesting program where um, they they, uh, basically have like a 10 cent additional contribution from the Michigan like state finances that goes into, you know, what the federal government is providing that is specifically supposed to 
um, really offset the fact that it would be costing schools more to be purchasing this local food. So I think that one of the things that we really need to do is to like think about how school food has been really siloed in a lot of ways. And so we have a lot of different kinds of policies, I think, both at the federal and state level that are designed to do things like focus on you know, rural economic development or focus on public health or focus on like academic achievement. And I think that when we underfund our school food programs, um, we're missing a real opportunity to think about how making an investment in this area could actually benefit multiple other sectors. So I think part of it is thinking a little bit more creatively about, you know, how we're thinking about financing and thinking less in silos about where the money is actually coming from. Yeah, I love that because, you know, as we all know, in school finance, we think about the federal contribution, the state contribution, and the local contribution. And somehow when we think about school lunches, we only think about the federal contribution. So that is a really insightful kind of shift of the way to, that a policymaker might think about it. Jennifer, we're just finishing up a study of school responses to the pandemic. And one of the really striking things that we see, particularly in high poverty districts, is this initial concern about getting meals out to students and families. And to me, it seemed to reveal this shift in, in education, mission creep, if you will, towards education becoming a provider of more basic social services, including food and mental health. And what does your work suggest about how provision of basic food to low-income families and to students is really becoming part of the mission of education? Yeah, I think that the pandemic really has helped underscore that fact um, for a lot of people who maybe didn't directly participate in the school food program because there have been a lot of reports that even will use images of uh, school food service workers um, in these grab-and-go lines giving out meals to illustrate like what food insecurity has looked like during the pandemic. And I think that one of the real challenges is that, unfortunately, we are in a situation with a pandemic where um, we've seen hunger um, increase, um, particularly in families with school-aged children. And so I think a lot of schools have felt um, like it's very necessary to maintain meal service, even though it's a lot more complex um, for them to do so. So first, when everything moved to remote schooling, and now you know there's just a lot of kind of complexities depending upon the district with whether they're doing all virtual or if they're doing some sort of hybrid or like totally in person, but still needing to maintain COVID safety protocols. So I think one thing that's important to recognize is that this has actually been a really costly time for school food service programs to like take on that role and to say, you know, we know that families and kids really depend on us. So we want to make sure that we're serving meals. But many of them, it's, it's not true across the board, like every program is a little bit different. But um, I would say that the general trend across the US has been that programs have really been running a deficit during their COVID service, in part because it just kind of costs more to do the kind of production that they have to do in order to maintain safety protocols for COVID. They're spending a lot more on packaging, and it just is kind of like a higher cost style of distribution. But the, the other thing is that, you know, in your earlier question, um, you mentioned the local contribution. And for schools, a big part of the local contribution they get is from 
families who are paying for their children's school meals. And also for all the kind of extra things that might be um, sold in schools through the a la carte line. So for the most part, all of that revenue, which actually is very important as part of the kind of local funding that's coming into the school food program, really dried up during the pandemic. So I think that that's kind of a real situation for a lot of districts now is even those that really were making a lot of progress in terms of improving the quality of food and starting to source more food, for instance, farm to school supply chains. I think that they're really at a point now where they're going to see some setbacks um, just in terms of what they're able to accomplish unless we're able to get additional investment from federal or state governments or kind of creatively you know, encourage people as part of a campaign to make school food better to like opt in um, to the program. But I think that it's just, it, it's a real challenge right now um, in schools in terms of, you know, knowing how important the service that they're providing is, but really being under-resourced when it comes to providing that service. Yeah, I mean, th- th- you have made so many illuminating comments about this niche of education, which really, as you point out, is is big business. And so I would really encourage our listeners to go and read Jennifer's full article. Um, again, it's entitled The Big Business of School Meals, and you can find it in Cap'n Magazine or cap'nonline.org in the October 2020 issue of Phi Delta Cap'n Magazine. And you can also learn more about the topic in Jennifer's 2019 book, The Labor of Lunch. Jennifer Gaddis, it's been so wonderful talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. To learn more about today's topic, pick up the October 2020 issue of Cap'n Magazine, titled School for Sale, now available in print and online at cap'nonline.org. For more episodes of this podcast or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub. <laughs>